Welcome to another thrilling episode on Book TV. But before we dive in, let's talk about enhancing your reading experience with novel nutrition. As you lose yourself in today's story, imagine supporting your journey with our unique supplements, specially crafted for readers like you. Whether it's boosting focus with Epic, unwinding with Read, or energizing with Zip Strips, Novel Nutrition is here to complement each chapter of your literary adventure. Visit novelnutrition.co or click the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use code BOOKTV for an exclusive 20% discount. Now, let's immerse ourselves in the magic of today's story. The Cup, The Project Book 13 Written by Alex Lukeman Narrated by Jack DeGolia Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down among you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. The Book of Revelation, Chapter 12, Verse 12 Prologue, Milan, 395 CE The emperor of Rome lay dying. The odor of his decaying, swollen body filled the room. His two sons had been sent away with a final kiss a half hour before, and now his confessor knelt by the bed, reciting prayers. Two of the emperor's generals looked on. Death was in the room. The priest finished his prayers and bent to hear the emperor's whispered words, Anastasis, send them away. The priest stood, an imposing figure in a black robe, a man who knew he spoke with the authority of God. His look was fierce. He commands you all to leave. We must witness the death. The speaker was Stilicho, guardian of Honorius, the ten-year-old boy who would rule in the West. Next to him stood Flavius Rufinus, guardian of Theodosius' other son, Arcadius. He would rule in the East. Obey your emperor. The priest's voice was stern. Soon enough you can do as you will. The two men bowed and backed out of the room, closing the door behind them. Theodosius spoke to the priest again, his voice little more than a whisper. Where? I will take it to the monastery, Majesty. All will be well. These men, Rufinus and the others, they are corrupt. They must not have it. A violent fit of coughing seized him. He clutched at the covers and struggled for breath. Anastasius held the emperor's head and wiped mucus from his lips with a cloth. The spasm passed. Theodosius fell back against his pillows. He raised a trembling hand and pointed at an ornate standing cabinet across the room. The cabinet. The priest went to the cabinet and opened the door reached in and took out a package the size of a loaf of bread, wrapped in cloth of gold. A harsh, gasping rattle made him turn in time to see Theodosius draw his final breath. The last emperor of one Roman Empire was dead. The priest closed the dead man's eyes, made the sign of the cross, and said another prayer for Theodosius's soul. He slipped the package under his robes, into the secret pouch he'd sewn to hold it. Now there was nothing left to do but allow the vultures to assemble. He threw open the doors. A dozen people waited in the antechamber. 
The emperor is dead. At last, Rufina said. He brushed rudely past the white-haired priest and went into the room, followed by the others. Anastasius waited until they were all inside and then slipped away. Under his robes, the package felt hot against his body. He was an old man, and a long journey lay before him. Chapter One The man in the picture was naked, nailed to the side of a wooden building. A circlet of barbed wire was jammed onto his head. Burns and gouges disfigured his body. He'd probably been dead by the time the birds went for his eyes. It was a sunny late autumn day in Virginia, the tail end of an Indian summer. The door to the patio was open, and the smell of burning leaves was in the air. The project team had gathered in Director Elizabeth Harker's office. Elizabeth sat at her desk, her feet barely touching the floor. Most of the furniture in the world wasn't built for petite people like her. She made up for her size with intensity and intelligence. She dressed in her usual combination of black pantsuit and white blouse. The blouse blended into her milk-white skin and set off her emerald green eyes, eyes that could crinkle with laughter or burn holes in someone who had earned her displeasure. The picture cast a dark shadow across the beauty of the day outside. Selena Connor felt her stomach turn as she looked at the photograph. She brushed a strand of reddish-blonde hair away from her head with a nervous movement. Selena was what some would call a classic beauty. Her eyes were either blue or violet, depending on the light. High cheekbones, a natural beauty mark over her lip, and full lips meant her face was memorable. She was someone people looked at twice. Selena was one of the world's experts in ancient languages. She'd married Nick Carter almost a year before, but still used her maiden name for the times when she needed to call upon her reputation. She handed the picture to Lamont Cameron, sitting next to her. What kind of sick mind would do something like that? He looked at it and shook his head. The human kind, I guess. The worst part of it. Lamont was one of the four people who made up the field team, along with Nick Carter, Selena, and Ronnie Pete. He'd been a Navy SEAL before Nick and Ronnie recruited him for the project. Lamont's face was a striking combination of colors and contrasts. Blue eyes had been handed down by forgotten ancestors in Ethiopia. A pinkish scar stood out on his coffee-colored skin, a souvenir of Iraq, that ran over his right eye and across his nose. One look told you he'd spent time in places where people had tried hard to kill him. When he smiled, it was the most natural thing in the world. When he was angry, he had the kind of face that frightened children. Lamont passed the picture to Ronnie Pete. Ronnie was the do-everything member of the team. He could pick a lock or blow up a building with equal ease. Doing it all was part of what was required by a gunnery sergeant in the Marines, his former occupation. He was a full-blooded Navajo and looked it. It was easy to imagine him mounted bareback on a horse and riding hard at you with a warhammer in his hand. He looked at the picture. That man died hard, he said. He handed the photograph on to Nick Carter, Selena's husband and the fourth member of the field team. 
Nick commanded the team in the field. He'd been a major in the Marines before Harker recruited him. Who is he? Nick asked. He handed the picture back to his boss. Vilgot Anderson, Elizabeth said. The picture was taken in Sweden. He was part of a task force dealing with immigrants coming from the Middle East. Some of them are terrorists pretending to be refugees. Anderson discovered that someone was selling Middle East antiquities stolen from places captured by ISIS, like Palmyra and Nimrud. The Swedes think he was killed because he stumbled onto an ISIS cell, part of a larger network. I don't see what it's got to do with us. The Swedes are overwhelmed. The connection to ISIS is bad news. They've asked President Rice for help, and we're it. Don't the Swedes vet these people when they come over the border? It's a sensitive issue. Most of the refugees are Muslims from the Middle East and Africa. They've brought a huge wave of crime and violence into Sweden, but the police are undermanned and hamstrung by the socialist government. Why doesn't their government do something about it? Ronnie asked. The Swedish Social Democratic Party puts the welfare of the refugees ahead of its own people. Their policies are going to cost them the next election, but for the moment, they're still in charge and pushing their agenda. People who complain are attacked in the press as xenophobic and racist. Does this mean we're going to Sweden? Nick asked. What the president wants, he gets. What are we supposed to do over there? Find out what Anderson knew, or at least what the Swedes know that he knew. He would have filed reports. See if you can pin down a connection to ISIS. If you find something, follow it up. Use your best judgment, but remember that you're under their command, as long as you're in the country. I don't see why Rice thinks we're the best people to do it. Maybe he just likes us, Lamont said. Lamont. Harker's tone carried a warning note. Sorry, Director. We have an understanding with Sweden. They keep an eye on Russia for us. We help them out once in a while. Sending you over there is part of the quid pro quo. I'm sending all of you, just in case you run into something serious. The guy in that picture ran into something serious, Ronnie said. He had to know something, Nick said. Why torture him if they only wanted him dead? It could be a message to the local Muslim population, Selena said. What do you mean? Harker asked. The symbolism. That man was crucified. Isis does that. So what's the message? Lamont asked. Keep your mouth shut. We can make this happen to you. Was Anderson a cop? Ronnie asked. Harker tapped her fingers on her desktop. No. He worked for KSI, the Office of Special Collection. That's more or less Sweden's equivalent of the CIA, though it's a lot smaller. You don't hear much about it in Sweden or anywhere else. Swedish spies? Ronnie asked. Seems like everybody's got spies these days. KSI specializes in human, human intelligence. Anderson would have been working informants. You'll have to follow his trail. When do we leave? Nick asked. Tomorrow. You're going commercial on SAS. National headquarters for KSI is in a suburb of Stockholm called Solna. I booked your flight. Your contact over there is a Major Otto Forsberg. Did you book a hotel for us? Selena asked. No, Harker said. I thought I'd leave that to you. Weapons? Nick asked. The Swedes don't want you bringing them into the country. I don't like that. There's nothing I can do about it. If there's a problem, let me know, and I'll see what I can do.
I'd feel better if you'd send a package to the embassy, just in case. I can do that, Elizabeth said. What's the weather like this time of year? Lamont asked. Cold. Be glad Stockholm doesn't get as cold as it does farther north. Chapter 2 It was nighttime when they arrived in Stockholm. Late October in Sweden meant short days and nights growing long. The city was already in winter mode. The temperature outside was a chilly 10 degrees above zero. Snow covered the ground around the airport. A man wearing a dark overcoat came forward to meet them as they neared customs. He had the face of a man who had seen more than he wanted to. He was around six feet tall, about Nick's height, with the same hard look Nick saw every time he looked in a mirror. It was something that came with years of military service. He was about 40 years old with blonde hair cropped close to his head. He had ice-blue eyes that passed over Nick and the others with quick appraisal. Nicholas Carter? Yes. Otto Forsberg, welcome to Sweden. Forsberg's English was good, his accent slight. They shook hands. Nick introduced the others. In Sweden, everyone learned English in school. Come with me, Forsberg said. He flashed his ID and took them through customs, bypassing inspection. Do you have checked baggage? He asked. No, just what we're carrying. Good. I have a car waiting. As they left the airport and stepped into the Swedish night, the cold hit them with razor sharpness. Selina pulled up the fur-lined hood of a blue parka. The coat set off the blue-violet color of her eyes and her blondish hair. With her high cheekbones and fair skin, most Swedes would take her for a native. They got into the car, a black Volvo wagon, idling by the entrance to the terminal. The heater was blasting. Nick was glad of the warmth inside the car. Where are you staying? Forsberg asked. Selina gave him the name of the hotel. Forsberg said something to the driver, and they pulled away into light traffic. Forsberg opened a briefcase that had been in the car and took out a folder. He handed it to Nick. We will begin tomorrow. In the meantime, I thought you would want to see what we have found out so far. Anything new on who killed your man? We're still following up on our inquiries. So nothing new? Not yet. How do you plan to work us into your investigation? I will be honest. It was not my idea to invite you here. I don't see what you can do that we can't. However, you are here now, and my orders are to find a way for you to be useful. Sure glad we can be useful, Lamont said. It's an awkward situation, Forsberg said. At this point, I am not sure how you fit in. You bring fresh eyes to our investigation. Perhaps you'll see something we've overlooked. Or you may have an idea that helps us find whoever killed Vilgut. You know what it's like. Intelligence work is a little like being a policeman. There's a lot of looking at bits of information and trying to piece them together into a picture we can understand. You knew the dead man? Selina asked. Yes, I knew him. We were a small organization and he was a good friend. This is personal for me. I want the people who did this. If you can help me do that, I will be very grateful. We didn't bring our weapons, Nick said. Speaking of grateful, that's what I'd be if you could issue us pistols. You think you will need them? Something like what you have under your coat would probably work. 
Ah, I didn't think that was quite so obvious. What are you carrying? Ronnie asked. A 10 millimeter pissed 88, what you would call a Glock 17. To answer your question, Nick said, I don't know if we'll need them, but I don't want to find out we do if we run into trouble. Whoever killed your man isn't playing games. If we succeed in finding him, he may be with his buddies. Even if he's not, he's not going to go peacefully. I'll see what I can do, Forsberg said. But it's unlikely to be approved. Not many of us carry guns here. Hmm, Nick said. Tomorrow we're going to one of the asylum centers for refugees, Forsberg said. It's the last place Anderson was seen before he disappeared. I want to question the residents again. Residents? It's an apartment block, people from Syria and Iraq. It's not a pleasant place, but it's better than living in a plastic tent. The people there are lucky. Some kind of luck, Lamont said. Do you speak Arabic? Selena asked. No. Then I can translate. Yes, your ability with languages is in our file. You understand dialects? There's always a file, she thought. Sometimes she wondered if there was any aspect of her life that wasn't in a folder somewhere. It depends, but yes, most of the dialects from the Middle East. That's the first good news I've had today. When we interviewed people at the center, we had to rely on one of their interpreters. I'm sure he didn't translate everything. Perhaps you will have better results. The car pulled up at the entrance of the hotel. Here you are. They got out of the car. I'll be back at 0800 tomorrow to pick you up. He looked at his watch. I'd better get going. We're having a special family dinner tonight. It's my grandfather's birthday. He's 92. That's fantastic, Nick said. He volunteered to fight the Germans during World War II. You would enjoy his stories, I think. Wasn't Sweden neutral? Not all of us were. Forsberg got back in the car. They watched it drive away. He seems pretty friendly, Ronnie said. Makes a change, Lamont said. Usually everybody tells us to stay out of the way. Sooner or later, someone will, Nick said. Chapter 3 Stockholm was built on an archipelago, a series of islands interwoven with lakes and canals. Nick and Selina's room looked out over the waterfront of Lake Malaren with a good view of the city. City Hall lay in one direction, the Swedish Parliament building and Old Town in the other. The hotel was a typical upscale European design, with a central living area paneled in light wood that might have been birch or ash. Recessed in one wall was an enormous TV. The bathroom was tiled in gray and black, accented with chrome and multiple mirrors. Large white ceramic bowls set on a stone counter served as wash basins. The suite looked as though it had come straight from the pages of a high-end architectural magazine. Light blue, translucent cloth curtains hung on a wall of windows looking out over the lake. The furniture was functional and comfortable, featuring chairs and a couch covered in gray fabric with matching wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and a polished round table. Discreet recessed lighting could be adjusted for a variety of effects. Nick looked around the room. Not bad. Selina tossed her jacket over the back of a chair. 
The Swedes have a real knack for this kind of thing. Let's have a drink downstairs and get something to eat. It might be our last chance to relax for a while. Things will start in earnest tomorrow. What about Ronnie and Lamont? I'll give them a call. They're just next door. Fifteen minutes later, they were in the lobby bar, sitting in front of a massive rock fireplace, blazing with a gas fire. A waitress brought their drinks. Soda for Ronnie, alcohol for everyone else. Alcohol didn't mix well with Ronnie's Navajo jeans. One of the reasons he'd joined the Marines was to get away from the problems on the reservation caused by drinking. Alcohol in any form was illegal on tribal land, but that didn't stop people from getting drunk. Poverty and booze went hand in hand on the res. That fire feels great, he said. These days the cold gets to me when the weather changes. What do you expect? Lamont said. You're getting old. Hell, I'm surprised you're not already using a walker. If anyone around here needs a walker, it's you, Ronnie said. I can still outrun you any day. I don't think so, Nick broke in. Let's talk about tomorrow. What time's the restaurant open? Lamont asked. Are we going to have time for breakfast? There's 24-hour room service. Just leave one of those cards out on the door handle with what you want, and when you want it, they'll bring it. Man, I love staying in places like this. Thanks for booking us in here, Selena. You're welcome, she said. Selena had upgraded them to the best rooms in the hotel just because she could. She did the same with airplane tickets if they were flying commercial. She told Nick it helped make up for the times they had to sleep on a bed of rocks or sand, freeze in mud or snow, or fight off scorpions and snakes. An inheritance meant she didn't have to worry about money, and she intended to enjoy it. Somehow she'd managed to remain unspoiled in spite of her wealth. I still don't see what we're supposed to do here, Lamont said. It depends on what Forsberg's team turns up. Nick drained his whiskey and signaled the waiter for another. You heard what he said. He's hoping Selena catches something they missed when we go to that refugee center. We bring a fresh perspective. Maybe we'll see something they don't. Sending all of us means Elizabeth thinks there's going to be trouble, Selena said. Sometimes she plays things pretty close to the vest, Nick said. But she wouldn't hold back anything important. It might not have anything to do with her, Ronnie said. Rice is on his way out, but he wouldn't mind helping out his legacy with some success over ISIS before he goes. He's the one that gave her the word. We don't know ISIS is involved, Nick said. Yeah, but it seems damn likely to me. ISIS has been blowing up statues and defacing sculptures everywhere they go. But they don't destroy the small stuff. They sell it for big bucks to buy weapons. If Anderson found someone doing that, it would have been enough reason to kill him. So much for what the Koran says about images, Lamont said. None of their radical ideology means a damn thing when it comes to making money. It's classic. Selena had ordered a martini. She took a sip from her glass and set it down. Ideology takes second place to money. They excuse it as using the infidel's own works against him. ISIS is bad news, Nick said. You wonder how they can do what they do. I don't see how anyone can do what they do, Lamont said. That's why you're one of the good guys. Radical Islam isn't rational, Selena said. It's collective insanity. 
Ronnie changed the subject. You think the Swedes are going to give us guns? I don't know, Nick said. Let's see if Forsberg can arrange it. Chapter 4 The next morning, Forsberg waited until the Volvo pulled away from the hotel to tell them. Sorry, no guns, he said. And if you're thinking about going around that, I wouldn't advise it. I wouldn't dream of it, Nick said. For the record, I think it's a mistake. You won't need them, Forsberg said. Let's hope you're right. The rest of the ride was spent in silence. The refugee housing was located in a suburb on the outskirts of Stockholm, bordering tracts of farmland. Set back from the street was a long, six-story brick apartment building that took up an entire block. It had been erected before World War II and was showing its age. Graffiti was scrawled across the front in Arabic. Trash littered the barren ground in front of the building. A group of sullen men in jackets and woolen caps stood around a fire built in an oil drum. Keep the engine running, Forsberg told the driver. We shouldn't be long. The men around the fire gave them hostile looks as they got out of the car. Lamont looked at the building. Someone was watching from a second-story window. Someone on the top floor closed a curtain. Not a good vibe, Lamont said. Reminds me of parts of D.C. I get a bad feeling about this place, Ronnie said. The religious leader here is Abu Sayyad Hussein, Forsberg said. I want to talk to him first. These people listen to him. What did he say when you interviewed him before? It was cold. Nick kept his hands in his pockets. His breath formed clouds of steam in the air as they talked. He said he didn't know anything. He was hiding something. Is everyone here Muslim? Yes. Is Hussein Sunni or Shia? Selina asked. Sunni. We found out early on that it's a good idea to keep the two apart. They're housed in separate facilities. ISIS is Sunni, Nick said. Do you want me to translate? Selina asked. It would be better if he didn't know you spoke Arabic. I called earlier and spoke with the man who supervises this place and let him know we were coming. I asked for a translator to be made available. Hussein will have someone with him. I want you to tell me afterwards if the translation was accurate. If you think there's something I should ask when we're talking, go ahead and interrupt. You expect him to lie? Nothing feels right about this guy. Forsberg said. He turned to Nick and the others. I'd like the rest of you to stay with the car. Why? Nick asked. No offense, but all of you together look a little intimidating. It's hard enough to get these people to talk to us. I don't want them to think we're here to arrest somebody. Everyone is afraid of being sent back where they came from. They already know we're here, Nick said. They've been watching us since we pulled up. I know but we need to be sensitive. Nick rolled his eyes. A lanky man with a shock of ash-blonde hair came out of the building and walked toward them. That's Alf Nielsen, Forsberg said. He's the supervisor here, but Hussein is really the one in charge. I've known Alf for years. Nick started to say something, but changed his mind. Nielsen came up to them. Good morning, Otto. Hussein's expecting you. Hello, Alf. The two men shook hands. Who have you brought with you? Forsberg introduced Nick and the others. Americans? Nilsson asked. 
They're here to help. Forsberg didn't elaborate on what kind of help. If you say so, follow me. The building had three separate entrances. Nilsson led Forsberg and Selina to the one on the far left. The door opened onto a narrow hall. The air was thick with cooking smells and the sour odor of too many people. On the right, a concrete stairway with an iron railing climbed toward the upper floors. Yellow paint on the walls peeled away from cracked concrete showing underneath. A single light bulb lit the hall. Graffiti in Arabic was scrawled everywhere. What will happen to the people who live here? Selina asked Nilsson. It depends. Some will be deported. Some of them will go somewhere else. Some will stay here in Sweden. Nilsson looked away from her as he spoke. Doesn't want to talk about it, she thought. I can't blame him. They walked past several apartments to the end of the hall and knocked on the door. An older woman wearing a gray covering over her hair and shoulders opened the door. It was hard to tell her age. She seemed worn and angry, the kind of look that comes from years of poverty and hardship. Her eyes flicked over Selina and she frowned. He is waiting for you. I'll leave you here, Nilsson said. The woman turned and walked away, not bothering to see if they were behind her. They followed the woman to a large room in the back, where windows looked out over a snow-covered field and half a dozen children kicking a soccer ball. A worn Persian rug covered the floor. Abu Sayed Hussein sat on a cushion placed on a low dais, a round-faced man with a sallow complexion dressed in a black robe and a white turban. One of his eyelids drooped half-closed. His dark hair needed cutting, and he wore a thick, full beard. A green banner hung on the wall behind him with God is Great, written on it in white Arabic letters. A self-appointed mullah, Selina thought. Just what we needed. A small, rat-faced man with a thin beard and beady black eyes sat on Hussein's left. He introduced himself as Gabriel. Hussein gestured at cushions placed in front of him. As Selina and Forsberg sat, he spoke in Arabic. Major, if you are here about your unfortunate friend, I have already told you everything I know. Gabriel translated. His eyes crawled over Selina. Thank you for your hospitality, Forsberg said. We have just a few routine inquiries for you. Who have you brought with you? Gabriel asked. She is one of my associates in training. She is here to observe. Hussein pointed at Selina and said something in Arabic. He looked angry. I'm sorry, Selina said. I don't speak Arabic. Have I done something wrong? You are dressed immodestly, Gabrielle said. Your hair is uncovered. Please excuse me. I am still learning. Selina pulled the hood of her parka over her hair. Hussein grunted approval. The woman who had answered the door entered the room with a tray and set it down. She knelt and poured glasses of tea from a brass pot. She handed them to Forsberg, Gabrielle, and Hussein, and ignored Selina. She gave Selina a disapproving look and left the room. Good thing I didn't want any tea, Selina thought. Forsberg began. I wanted to go over what you told us before about Anderson. You said that he visited here only once. The translator spoke to Hussein in Arabic. Selina listened. 
This Swedish dog asks again about the man who died. He says you told him the man was here only once. He wants to know if that is so. Tell him whatever he wants to hear so he'll go away. Tell him yes, only once, Hussein said. He's becoming annoying. He says yes, only once. Well, you see, there's a problem about that, Forsberg said. We recently discovered Anderson's notes. He mentions three visits here, not one. That cannot be, Gabriel said. He turned to Hussein. He says the man was here three times. I told him that could not be so. Tell him that if the man was here, it was without my knowledge. Tell him he violated my hospitality and his government's rules for such interrogations. Gabriel repeated what Hussein had said. Forsberg said, Whether it was three visits or one, the last place Anderson was seen alive was here. A witness saw him talking with a man outside before he left. He was murdered later that evening. We would like to find this person and speak with him. What did this man look like? We have many men here. He had a distinctive scar on his cheek. I want to interview the men and find him. Gabriel translated. Hussein scowled. He's talking about Ahmed. That fool was stupid to be seen. This has gone far enough. Tell him it is not possible for him to interview the men, and in any event, there is no one with such a scar here. Ask him who the witness was, then tell him that the interview is over. Who was this witness? Gabrielle asked. I can tell you that. It will not be possible for you to talk with the men. Besides, there is no one with a scar such as you described leaving here. The interview is over. Gabrielle stood. What about the man with the scar I saw outside as we came in? Selena said. There is no such man. The interview is over. Hussein's woman had been listening outside the door. Now she went into the hall and knocked on the door of the next unit. A man answered. The woman said something to him. He nodded and left his apartment, walking quickly to the entrance. In the interview room, Forsberg and Selena stood. Hussein remained seated, unsmiling. He waved at them with the back of his hand, dismissing them. You must leave now, Gabrielle said. Let's go, Forsberg said to Selena. They left the room. He lied, Selena said as they walked down the hall. He knows the man with the scar. His name is Ahmed. After they were gone, Hussein turned to Gabrielle. Send Ahmed to the farm. He can relieve Jamal. I told you there would be problems over killing the spy. We should have disposed of his body. It was a direct order from al-Baghdadi. He wanted an example made. Would you like to explain your concerns to him? I meant no disrespect. The Swede we have been using to distribute the artifacts has forgotten where his good fortune comes from. He's skimming profits by keeping select pieces for himself. The Swedes are a corrupt people, Gabrielle said. Call him. Threaten to end our business relationship unless he does something to divert police attention from us. It will mislead him into thinking he is still trusted, but he has outlived his usefulness. After he has done as you asked, I want you to go to his house and eliminate him. Retrieve anything that might lead back to us. Gabriel placed his hand over his heart and bowed. As you wish, Abu. Chapter 5
Outside the building, Nick and the others waited beside the car. Nick saw a man come out of the building and walk over to the group by the fire. He began talking loudly and gesturing at the car. He seems kind of upset, Lamont said. Nick scratched his ear. I don't like the look of that. Where are Selena and Forsberg? There they are, with that other guy, just coming out. Forsberg, Alf, and Selena started toward the car. A dozen men came out of the other two entrances of the building. Some of them held pieces of pipe. Nick caught a glimpse of a knife. They looked angry. That's trouble. Nick turned to the driver. He was young and he looked nervous. Get ready to get out of here. We'd better get over there, Ronnie said. The men from the fire headed toward Selena and Forsberg. The others turned toward Nick, Ronnie, and Lamont. Sure wish I had my peace, Lamont said. Don't wait, Nick said. Do as much damage as you can. These people will try to hurt us. What about Selena? She can take care of herself and Forsberg is armed. Copy that, Lamont said. Nick felt the adrenaline rush just as the first man reached him and swung at him with a pipe. Nick blocked the blow and broke the man's elbow. Ah! The scream echoed across the yard. All Nick's senses came alive. Time slowed. He was aware of the pipe swinger falling to the ground, grasping at his arm and screaming. He was aware of Ronnie and Lamont wading into the crowd. Training took over. Responses drilled into him over years and honed with countless hours of practice. He felt his blows landing. Someone slashed at him with a knife and cut through his jacket. He kicked the man's knee, forcing it into an impossible angle. The man cried out as he went down. Nick kicked him in the head. The knife flew out of his hand. Somebody jumped on his back. He grabbed an arm and jacket and levered the attacker over his hip and down. The man's head hit the ground hard. He stopped moving. There was a shot, a sharp crack echoing in the cold air. Somebody yelled out. Nick looked that way and saw Selena. She was all movement, arms and legs a blur. Her attackers went down before her as if she were wielding a scythe. Three men lay on the ground nearby. A fourth went down as he watched. Then it was over. The men still standing ran back into the building. Nick knew they'd be back in minutes with reinforcements. Forsberg was on his knees holding his side. Blood seeped between his fingers. His pistol lay on the ground beside him. Selena bent down and picked it up. Alf Nilsson lay on the ground, unconscious, bleeding from a head wound. Selena came over to Nick. Her face was flushed. There was a long rip in her parka where someone had slashed at her with a knife. Are you all right? She said. Yes, I was about to ask you the same thing. I'm good. Looks like you need a new jacket. Ronnie and Lamont came up to them. Lamont was rubbing his shoulder. That was a hell of a brawl, Lamont said. You okay? Nick asked. Yeah, some asshole got me with a pipe. He's over there taking a nap with his buddies. Eight or nine of the men who'd attacked them lay on the ground, some motionless, some groaning and moving around. We need to get out of here. Forsberg's hurt. Ronnie and Selena, take him to the car. Lamont, we'll get Nilsson. We can't leave him. I'm all right, Forsberg said. He staggered to his feet. They'll come out again. Nick and Lamont picked Nilsson up, 
and ran with him to the car. They got him into the rear of the wagon as the doors of the refugee house burst open. A horde of angry men poured out, shouting and waving clubs. Time to boogie, Ronnie said. They piled into the car. Selena, discourage them, Nick said. Selena reached through the open window with Forsberg's pistol and fired three rounds into the ground in front of the charging mob. It stopped them long enough to get the Volvo away. I'm heading for a hospital, the driver said. The car accelerated. He hit his lights and siren. Nilsson was still unconscious. Nick pressed Forsberg's hand against the bleeding wound. Keep pressure on it. Can you do that? Yes. You'll be okay. Man, those people are crazy, Lamont said. It's like that all over, Forsberg spoke between clenched teeth. They're out of control. They think it's their right to do what they want. Selena said, they come here and are taken care of, and then they act like this. I don't understand it. They're animals, Forsberg said. We help them and they hate us. No one knows what to do. These are difficult times for my country. For the world, Nick said. Chapter 6 Chief Superintendent Axel Bergstrom sat in his fourth-floor office at National Police Headquarters, put his phone down, and chewed on a fingernail. He looked out at Cronensburg Park across the way. In winter, the park was a clean, snow-filled space, a pleasant piece of the country in the heart of the city. In summer, it was green and lush, a favorite spot to take a lunch break or a walk. Usually, Bergstrom found the view soothing. Not today. The call had changed that. Bergstrom was assigned to the National Task Force, the intelligence and tactical division of the Swedish police, responsible for dealing with hostage situations, terrorism, and the reality of multiplying threats from every direction. For years, Sweden had been one of the most crime-free and peaceful nations in Europe. But those days were over. Murders were increasing. Drugs were everywhere. The overwhelming influx of refugees and immigrants fleeing the wars in the Middle East had brought with it a host of new problems. Bergstrom had been a policeman for 35 years and would go no farther in his career. He'd spent his adult life without doing any of the things he'd really wanted to do. When his wife had been alive, he'd wanted to travel. But except for one holiday in Spain, they hadn't gone anywhere outside the country. Travel was a luxury he'd never been able to easily afford on his salary. His retirement ceremony was only a few months away, but his pension wasn't enough to maintain what he considered a decent lifestyle. His position gave him access to everything and anything that touched on criminal activity in Sweden. When he discovered that the refugee center in Solna was being used as a distribution center for smuggled antiquities, he'd seen his opportunity. Bergstrom didn't consider the trade in artifacts a real crime. After all, who was being hurt by it? He'd never understood people who thought tombs and ancient cities were places where everything should be preserved in a museum or left in the dust where it had lain unnoticed for centuries. Bergstrom only dealt with two buyers in order to minimize his potential exposure. Dumouriez was in France, Mercurio in Italy. Dumouriez would take anything that came from the ancient civilizations of the Middle East. 
a bas-relief, a carved tile, a statue, a piece of pottery, it didn't matter. Mercurio, on the other hand, was only interested in Christian objects. There were fewer of those, but when they turned up, he was willing to pay a premium price for them. It had been a satisfactory arrangement. The artifacts came in with the immigrants and ended up at the center with Syed Hussein. Bergstrom made sure the police looked in a different direction and arranged for a buyer. The commission was deposited in a bank in Andorra. He'd accumulated a nice nest egg, enough for a comfortable retirement. Most of his flights of fancy centered around some place warm by the ocean, Ibiza, perhaps, or the Azores. Everything had been going smoothly. Bergstrom could almost feel the sand between his toes. Then Vilgot Anderson had interfered. That was the trouble with honest cops. Bergstrom looked down at his thumb, where he'd chewed the nail to the quick. Things were slipping out of control. First, Anderson's body had been found. Bergstrom had been shocked. There wasn't supposed to be any violence, certainly nothing like that. No one was supposed to get hurt, but they hadn't asked before they killed him, and there was nothing he could have done about it anyway. It was a strong message, meant for Bergstrom as much as anyone else. The phone call had been from Syed Hussein's alter ego, Gabriel. Bergstrom didn't like Gabriel, but he had to deal with him, since Hussein couldn't speak Swedish or English. Gabriel had told him about the visit from Forsberg and the near riot outside afterward. He'd warned Bergstrom that their arrangement was at risk. He wanted the police to back off. Bergstrom already knew what had happened at the center. It was the number one topic at police headquarters. What he didn't know was who the people were who had been with Forsberg. They hadn't been in uniform. Gabrielle had said he thought the woman might be American. It had been necessary to spend a few minutes soothing Gabrielle. Inside, Bergstrom had been angry. It helped to push away the feeling of panic that was beginning to worm its way into his consciousness. Bergstrom wished he could get rid of Gabrielle and Hussein, but it was fantasy. In truth, he was not a brave man. He'd never even fired a gun in anger. He looked at his watch. In 20 minutes, there was a meeting to discuss a response to the morning's events. Someone from the ministry would be there, and that always created problems. Whenever the government got involved in police business, it was never certain what the result would be. The laissez-faire policy of the Social Democrats toward the immigrants worked to Bergstrom's advantage, but an incident like this couldn't be overlooked. He needed to find out who was working with Forsberg and what was being planned at KSI. After that, he'd decide what to do. Chapter 7 The day after the raid on the asylum, the team met again at KSI headquarters. Forsberg followed them into the conference room and sat down. You look pretty good for someone who just got knifed, Nick said. It looked worse than it was. It missed everything important. It's sore as hell, though. I know the feeling, Ronnie said. Let's talk about yesterday. Forsberg looked at Selina. Tell me what Hussein said that wasn't translated. They have nothing but contempt for you. Gabrielle called you a dog. 
Hussein told him to find out what you wanted and then tell you whatever you wanted to hear so you'd go away. He said you were annoying. Woof, woof. I'll show him annoying. What else did he say? You asked about the man seen talking with Anderson. With the scar. Hussein called him Ahmed and said he was a fool for being seen. He told Gabriel to say there was no one there like that. He wanted Gabriel to find out who the witness was that saw Ahmed, and after that to tell you the interview was over. Ahmed, at least we have a name. It's a common name, Selena said. Do you have a picture database of the refugees? Nick asked. With that scar, it should be easy to pick him out. Over a hundred thousand immigrants came here last year, and there are more every day. There are many pictures, but most are of poor quality. It will take some time. If he's in there, we'll find him. What are you going to do about Hussein? Nick asked. Nothing at the moment. He is one of the most important Muslim leaders in Sweden. I don't have any grounds to arrest him. If I take him in, there will be riots. People will get hurt. The government would call it harassment and free him, but not before the damage was done. Until I have proof he's involved in terrorist activity, I can't do anything. Then I'd guess we'd better find some proof, Nick said. There's going to be a government inquiry, Forsberg said. I fired my weapon, and I shot one of the men who attacked us. In the current political environment, I'm guilty of an unprovoked racist attack until proven innocent. After the inquiry, I'll probably be suspended. That's crazy. That's politics. Hussein will claim anything you say to back me up is a lie because you're prejudiced against Islam. He'll say I insulted Muhammad, and that's why everyone got upset. There will be a dozen witnesses to swear I fired with no provocation. Nick said nothing. It all sounded uncomfortably familiar. Forsberg continued. It means you'll be asked to leave. Hell, we just got here, Lamont said. I was just settling in. They won't kick you out before the inquiry, but you'd better be ready to pack. Who was the witness that saw Anderson with Ahmed? Selena asked. A truck driver named Torn Dahlberg. He delivers produce to the center. Dahlberg was making a delivery and saw the two of them arguing. Did anyone see Anderson after that? No, we have a CCTV recording of him going into his apartment building and coming out two minutes later in a hurry. He got into his car and drove away. His phone records show that he received a call right before he left. It came from a throwaway. We can't trace it. Where did he go? He drove out of town, toward where we found his body. It's all country out there, farmland. Many of the old farms are deserted now. The old people are dying off, and the young ones don't want to take up farming. Anderson was nailed to the side of a barn on one of those empty spreads. What was he doing out there? Nick asked. We don't know. We think the phone call was to set him up. Whoever called probably killed him. Did you find anything at the site to explain why he was there? No. He didn't drive there directly, and we haven't found his car yet. Whoever killed him grabbed him and took him out there where he died. If we could find the car, it might tell us something, Selena said. Sure, Forsberg said, but it could be anywhere. What kind of car was it? Vilgat drove a blue Saab, an older model. 
I used to kid him about it. It was pretty beat up. If he drove out of town, that narrows it down some, Nick said. Forsberg shrugged. There are lots of places in the country where a car could be hidden. A barn, a shed, lots of places. We don't have the manpower to search everything along that highway. Are there houses along the road? Selena asked. Maybe someone saw him drive by. We thought about that. We asked everybody we could find, but nobody recalled seeing him. You talked to everyone? Everyone we could find. What about the ones you couldn't? Forsberg looked annoyed. Damn it, you're right. I don't think anyone has followed up on that. There were places where no one was home. We made a second pass and still came up with nobody. It got lost in the shuffle. I should have thought of it. Don't feel too bad, Nick said. It's an easy thing to do, a detail like that. I should have thought of it, Forsberg said again. It's something we can do today. Better than sitting around here, waiting for somebody to yell at me for shooting that bastard. Selena looked out the window. The sky was overcast, filling with gray clouds. That looks like something's coming in. It's supposed to snow later, Forsberg said, but not until tonight. We'll be back before it hits. Chapter 8 Forsberg drove the Volvo. He had a list of places where no one had been at home. At the first one, the door was opened by a middle-aged farmer eating a sandwich. He spoke with a thick accent that Selena couldn't understand. Farsberg spoke with him for a few minutes. The door closed. He didn't see anything. Where is he from? Selena asked. I didn't understand what he said except for a few words. Up north, near Kruna. It's near the Norwegian border. The dialect is hard to understand for most Swedes, much less a foreigner. The next farm was a few miles farther down the road. The main house was two stories high, a long, single building with whitewashed walls and a pitch roof. Behind it was a smaller stone building that might have once been a guest house. There was a barn. The farm had a forlorn, abandoned feeling to it. Everyone had walked away one day and left it behind. The day was cold and clear. Fresh snow had fallen the night before. The drive leading in showed no tracks. No vehicles were visible. As they drove up to the house, Selena thought a curtain moved on the second floor. Forsberg knocked on the door. There was no response. He knocked again, louder. The sound rolled flat across empty fields, marked by stubble sticking out through the snow. The silence was overwhelming. Nobody home, Forsberg said. I thought I saw a curtain move upstairs, Selena said. There are no tracks, no vehicles. Nobody's going to walk all the way out here. I could have been mistaken. She looked again at the window. There was nobody there. They drove on to the third farm on the list. They found the farmer in his barn, mending harness. He was a man who might have been 80 years old or more, with a face grizzled by hard work and hard weather. His arms were knotted with muscles. A faded navel tattoo graced one of them. He hadn't seen anyone either. No, no blue car. Yes, he was usually here. He'd probably been out in the fields when they'd been here before. If a blue car had gone by, he would have noticed it. He knew all the cars that came this way. There wasn't any reason to go this way except to visit neighbors a mile up the road. 
The weather was going to act up, and they might get a lot of snow. The man went on for five minutes before Forsberg finally cut him off. He thanked him, and they went back to their car. I thought he'd never stop talking, Forsberg said. Some of these old farmers get lonely. It seems desolate, Selena said. I can see how living out here could get you down. It looks that way now, Forsberg said. But in the spring and summer, it's beautiful. All this is green. There are flowers everywhere, birds. It's a beautiful place, but winter is bleak. What now? Ronnie asked. That was the last stop on the list. We might as well head back to town. I want to look at that second place again, Selena said. Why? Just a feeling. The more I think about it, the more I'm sure someone was inside the house. Why didn't they answer the door? Forsberg looked at her. A feeling? Better listen to her, Ronnie said. She's got good intuition. Why not? It's on the way. Nothing had changed when they returned. The only tracks going in and out from the main house were the ones they'd left earlier. The curtain in the upstairs window hung still and lifeless. Forsberg pounded on the door again. There was still no answer. They walked around the house, peering in windows. There was nothing to see except empty rooms. A back door was locked. Let's take a look at the barn, Nick said. Technically speaking, I'm supposed to have a warrant, Forsberg said. I won't say anything if you don't. Nick started toward the barn. The building was old, weathered by years of harsh Swedish winters. The boards had long ago given up any paint they might once have had. Two hinged doors were closed with a thick metal hasp and locked with a new, heavy-duty padlock. A square metal plate was bolted onto the wood behind the lock and hasp. Nick pointed at the lock. What's a new lock like that, doing on a beat-up building like this? Everything else around here is falling apart. Forsberg bent to examine the lock. Someone wants this to stay closed. Makes me wonder what's inside, Ronnie said. Why don't we find out, Lamont said. The side of the barn was littered with scrap, the kind of junk found on every old farm. Rolls of wire, an ancient tractor, a broken pump. Odd pieces of rusted machinery, pieces of pipe. Lamont picked up a length of half-inch pipe about two feet long. He went back to the door, thrust the pipe through the loop of the padlock, and braced it against the metal plate. He levered down, grunting with the force. The lock, plate, and bolts pulled away from the old wood with a screeching sound. It sounded like someone dragging their nails across a blackboard. Selina covered her ears. I hate that sound. Lamont made a claw of his hand and pretended to run it across an invisible surface. Eee! Very funny, Selina said. Looks like somebody broke in here, Lamont said. We'd better investigate, just to make sure everything's okay. Forsberg shook his head, but he was smiling. Ronnie and Nick swung the doors open. The interior of the barn was cold and uninviting. Dust motes floated in shafts of sunlight coming through holes in the roof. The floor was packed dirt. Three wooden stalls lined one side of the building. Old tools hung on the other wall. Anderson's blue sob was parked at the far end. Bingo, Ronnie said. The Volvo started up outside. 
Fuck, Forsberg yelled. He pulled his gun and ran to the open doors of the barn. The car fishtailed down the drive as it accelerated. Forsberg took a two-handed stance and fired. The rear window shattered. He kept firing until the magazine was empty and the side of his Glock locked open. The Volvo slowed and veered to the side. It kept going until it went over the edge of an irrigation ditch paralleling the drive, ending up nose down in the ditch, rear wheels spinning. The horn sounded a steady, raucous note. They walked toward the ditch. Forsberg reloaded. I smell gas, Selena said. A wisp of pale flame flickered along the side of the car. Uh-oh, Ronnie said. The gas tank exploded. A bright orange flower burst into bloom against the white snow. The force of the blast knocked them down. One of the car doors spiraled into the air and came crashing down 50 feet away. A column of dirty black smoke rose into the sky. Forsberg picked himself up and brushed snow off his clothes. He looked at the burning hulk. Damn it, that was my personal car. Looks like you were right about somebody being home, Nick said to Selena. Chapter 9 Forsberg called his headquarters, spoke for a few moments, and put the phone back in his pocket. Forensics is coming. They'll bring a vehicle for us. Until then, we're stuck here. I want to take another look around, Nick said. Why was someone here? He must have been guarding something, and it wasn't Anderson's car. Whoever it was, he didn't want to get caught. Selena brushed dirt off her jacket sleeve. Let's start with the barn, Forsberg said. The barn revealed nothing except a patch of oil under Anderson's car. The door of the house was open. Wide-spaced footprints in the snow showed where the driver of the Volvo had run from the house to the car. They went inside and began going from room to room, opening cupboards, looking in closets. There was furniture in every room, but it was obvious that the house had not been lived in for years. On the second floor, they found a sagging bed, a chair, and a dresser with a cracked mirror. The bed had been slept in. There was a Koran on the dresser. Forsberg held up the book. Why does this not surprise me? The first and second floors gave up nothing else of interest. Is there a root cellar? Selena asked. Wouldn't there be something like that on one of these old farms? There should be. The entrance is usually off the kitchen. Forsberg said. I didn't see one, Ronnie said. They went back to the kitchen. Ronnie was right. There was no obvious door or entrance to a cellar. An enormous china cupboard was pushed up against one wall. If I were a door, where would I be? Nick said. What's behind that big cupboard? Let's find out, Ronnie said. Selina pointed at the stone floor. There are old scratches. Someone's moved it before. Ronnie and Nick moved the cupboard away from the wall. Behind it was a wooden door painted green. Nick pulled it open, took out a pocket flashlight, and shone light through the opening. A short flight of wooden steps led into the darkness. He climbed down, followed by Lamont. Creepy down here, Lamont said. The floor was dirt, littered with old rat droppings. They had to stoop under a low beam ceiling covered with spider webs. 
Open wooden bins took up much of the confined space. The bins were empty. There was nothing at all to indicate that anyone had been in the cellar for a long time. Back upstairs, Nick brushed fragments of cobwebs from his jacket. There's still that stone building, Ronnie said. The building wasn't locked. The windows were broken. It was one large room, and it was empty. They went back outside. There has to be something here, Nick said. Maybe he was squatting, Selena said. Sure, but why steal the car? How much trouble could someone get in for sleeping in an abandoned house? It's overkill. I keep thinking about that fancy padlock on the barn. We should take another look. We've been in there twice already, Forsberg said. Not like we got something better to do, Lamont said. We're not going anywhere until someone comes to take us back to town. The barn looked the same as it had an hour before. Selena wandered over to the stalls. The dirt floors still had old straw on them. She started into the middle stall to look at an old piece of leather tack hung on the weathered boards and stumbled against something. She kicked the straw away, exposing an iron ring in the floor. Over here. The ring was set in a wooden trapdoor. Nick bent down and pulled on it. The door came up easily on oiled hinges. A wooden ladder dropped straight down into whatever lay below. He handed Selena his flashlight. Hold the light for me. The bottom of the hidden room was ten feet below the stable floor. The room was about twenty feet square, but it wasn't old like the rest of the farm. The boards forming the walls were clean and fresh, the nails holding them together still bright. Better come down here, Nick called. Forsberg came down the ladder, followed by Selena. She played the light around the room. Four long crates, stamped with Swedish markings, were stacked against a wall. There were boxes at the end of the room. Nick pointed the light at the nearest crate. What does that say in Swedish? Shit, Forsberg said. It says shit? Those are military markings. He walked over to the crate. The lid was loose. He lifted it up. Assault rifles, AK-5Cs. They're issued to the home guard. That explains the lock, Nick said, and why they left someone behind. Bring the light over here, Selena said. She stood at the back of the room, looking down at the contents of an open crate. It was filled with artifacts, packed in straw. It was easy to see that the objects were old. Selena picked up a statue of a goddess about eight inches tall. This is Babylonian. It's a statue of Astarte, probably looted from Iraq. Isis, Nick said. Has to be. Nick turned to Forsberg. After finding this, I don't think you have to worry much about what happened at the refugee center. Selena lifted the top off another crate. Wow, she said. The gold gleamed in the light of her flashlight. The crate was filled with objects stolen from Christian churches. There was a gold chalice and two gold candlesticks. With the chalice and candlesticks was a silver Orthodox crucifix set with precious stones. There was a silver box, about a foot long and eight inches across. Words in Latin were scribed on the surface of the lid. Liber Simon. Selina opened it. Inside were two ancient scrolls of vellum. 
If she hadn't opened that box, everything would have been different. Chapter 10 Selena took the box with her when they climbed out of the hidden room. Back in the house, they sat down at a wooden table in the kitchen and waited for Forsberg's people to arrive. Nick looked at the silver container. What does the Latin say? It says, The Book of Simon. Selena lifted one of the scrolls from the box. It's still flexible. I think I can open it. She laid it on the table. With great care, she unrolled it. This is written in Biblical Aramaic. Selena scanned the scroll. I don't believe this. If this is real... Well, Lamont said, what does it say? It's a description of the crucifixion written by Simon of Cyrene. Nick looked at her. Who was Simon? He's the one who helped Christ carry the cross. If this is authentic, it's an amazing find. Forsberg said, I'm surprised those barbarians didn't melt the box down and throw that scroll in the trash. They may be barbarians, but their leaders aren't stupid, Nick said. They need money for weapons. Looted antiquities are a big source of income for them, right after oil. The black market for artifacts is huge. There are plenty of people who don't care how something is obtained. One of those little statues like Selena held up is worth thousands to a collector. Your man Anderson must have discovered what they were doing, Ronnie said. Nick turned to Forsberg. Everything points back to that refugee center. Are you going to raid it? Forsberg sighed. The government is reluctant to do anything that involves Muslim immigrants. They're afraid of being criticized at the UN. I was them, I'd be more afraid of the terrorists, Lamont said. Whoever hid those guns wasn't planning on hunting reindeer. We don't have reindeer down here. Forsberg said. Whatever. I'll have to go to the minister with this. I can make a good case for a raid, but I can't do it without permission. What if you can't get it? Nick asked. Forsberg smiled. Even a politician can be persuaded to do the right thing once in a while. They'll give it to me. There's an election coming up. Finding and eliminating an ISIS terror cell would look good in the papers. Not everyone in our government is afraid to do what needs to be done. I hear vehicles, Selena said. Forsberg got up. Selena put the scroll back in the box and took it with her as they followed him outside. Three cars and a van pulled up. A dark-haired woman wearing a red winter jacket got out of the lead vehicle. Wait here, Forsberg said. I won't be long. He walked over to the woman and began speaking with her. He pointed at the barn, then at the ditch where the remains of the Volvo smoldered under a sullen sky. Nick took out his phone. I'd better call Harker. Elizabeth picked up on the second ring. About time, Nick. Where are you? Standing in the Swedish countryside looking at a wrecked car. It's been a busy couple of days. He ran the events of the past 48 hours past her. The Swedes are going to raid that refugee center. I want us along. You think they'll have a problem with that? I can't see them letting us go with them. For one thing, they won't give us weapons. They'll send in their SWAT team. Then let them go ahead and do the work, Elizabeth said. What if they miss something? They're professional. KSI is small, but they have a good reputation. Can't you pull some strings and get us on that raid? What's your concern? 
The government here is way over on the left and afraid of international opinion. The Muslim refugee issue is a minefield. Forsberg says he can get the rate approved, but I'm sure that if something sensitive turns up, it will be suppressed. ISIS is flooding Europe with stolen artifacts. The immigrant center is one of the distribution points, and no one is monitoring them. There could be evidence inside that implicates someone in the Swedish government or identifies an important buyer, someone who's protected. If there is, I want to get a look at it. Hmm, it would be a big help if we could identify a buyer. That stuff isn't cheap. Whoever is paying for it is rich, and that means he's got clout. If the buyer is Swedish, we're never going to hear about it unless we're on the scene. I see your point. I can't guarantee anything, but I'll see what I can do. Let me speak with her, Selena asked. Selena wants to talk to you. Nick handed Selena the phone. Elizabeth, we found something with the artifacts. Yes? It looks like a lost book from the Bible, or at least part of one. I'd like to translate it before I have to give it to the Swedes. It's an incredible find. The government is sure to conceal it until they've had a chance to study it. And you want me to make sure you have the opportunity first? Yes. I could take photographs, but it will be more accurate if I have them in my hands. Can you make that happen? That will be easier than getting the four of you on that raid, Elizabeth said. With your reputation, I don't see why it should be a problem. You'd be doing them a favor. Wonderful. Thanks. She handed the phone back to Nick. Forsberg had finished speaking with his colleague. He started toward them. We're about to head back into town, Nick said. Anything else, director? Play nice with the Swedes and keep a low profile. Chapter 11 The raid was on, but Forsberg had been warned in no uncertain terms against creating an international incident. If there was trouble and the government needed a scapegoat, he was going to be it. He'd decided the best way to head off potential problems was with a show of force. Nick and the others had been allowed on the raid as observers. They still had no weapons. They were not allowed to enter the center until the Swedes had secured the building. It was three in the morning, dark and cold. The air felt raw and smelled of coming snow. Nick, Selena, Ronnie, and Lamont sat in a car parked three blocks away from the center, behind two Plasan Sandcats carrying the Swedish SWAT teams. The SWAT vehicles had been designed in Israel and carried eight men each. The Plasan was basically an armored box slapped onto a shortened Ford F-350 platform. It was cheap, rugged, and effective. The cold seeped into the car in spite of the heater. The windows had fogged up with condensation. He's gonna go in there hard, Ronnie said. Did you see those guys? They're wired to the eyeballs. You would be too, Lamont said, especially if it was your first time going into action. You think it's their first time? Most of them look like they're about 18, Lamont said. They don't have the look. You know what I mean? What look? Selena asked. The look that comes after you've been in shit up to your ears with people trying to kill you. You've never noticed it in your mirror? There might not be any real trouble, Nick said. The Swedes are carrying assault rifles. You have to be pretty stupid to go against those with pipes and knives or whatever you can find lying around. 
I don't think the people in that building are the brightest bulbs on the Christmas tree, Lamont said. There were grenades in one of those cases in the barn, Selena said. Forsberg had given them a handheld radio. Now it crackled with the final comm checks. The two SWAT vehicles would head for the front of the building. A third group was on foot, concealed on the other side of the soccer field, behind the center. The plan was for all three units to converge at the same time. Nick and the others had been ordered to stay back until the all-clear. Forsberg's voice came over the radio. All units, execute. Here we go, Lamont said. The two vehicles moved out in front of them. Nick cursed at the condensation on the windshield and wiped it away, then followed behind. In less than a minute, they'd arrived at the refugee center. Men in black tactical gear carrying Heckler and Koch MP5s poured out. They split into three groups and headed for the entrances. Nick pulled up and parked. They got out of the car. Sure wish we had our weapons, Ronnie said. The doors to the building were locked. Battering rams came out. It took just seconds to smash the locks. There were shouts from inside the building as the men started in. The sound of a pistol cut through the shouting like a hot knife. There was an answering burst of automatic fire, the unforgettable signature of a three-round burst from an AK-47. That's torn it, Lamont said. More gunfire came from the building. Nick heard the familiar sounds of the MP5s, the hard bark of a heavy pistol, then two more AKs joining in. Windows shattered in the front of the building. Rounds whistled overhead. They ducked down behind the car. The sound of an explosion rocked the night air, then another. Flashbangs, Lamont said. There was another, different explosion. That was a grenade, Ronnie said. They've got their hands full in there. Selena pointed at the end of the building. Someone's down there. Three men carrying guns came around the corner and moved in a crouch toward the entrance where Forsberg had gone in. Two of them had pistols. The third cradled an AK. They weren't Swedish. I thought the back was covered, Ronnie said. Probably came out a side window, Nick said. If they go in that door, they'll be behind Forsberg's team. We have to stop them. Ronnie nodded in the direction of the building. They don't know we're here. We can take them. Nick tugged at the scarred earlobe on his left ear. Let's do it. Get their weapons. The three men were intent on reaching the nearest entrance 20 feet away. Nick and the others were almost on them when the man carrying the AK saw them coming. He shouted a warning, aimed the rifle at Ronnie, and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. He'd forgotten the safety. Selena knocked the gun from his hands and beat him to his knees with a flurry of blows, then kicked him hard under the chin. His head snapped back with a sharp crack as his neck broke. He fell to the ground like a puppet with cut strings. Nick grabbed the second man's pistol as it came up. He wrapped his hand around the slide, grabbed the forearm with his other hand, and pushed the gun and arm in opposite directions. The sudden movement twisted the gun sideways and bent the trigger finger at an impossible angle. It broke. The man screamed in pain. Nick kneed him in the groin and punched him on the back of the neck as he folded over. The last man fired as Lamont knocked his arm away. 
The round went wide. Lamont headbutted him and kicked him in the head after he was down. The fight was over. Three Swedes came out of the building, followed by Forsberg. He looked at the three men lying on the ground and the weapons lying beside them. What happened? Nick pointed. Those three were getting ready to go in behind your guys. We stopped them. I wasn't going to bring you along. I'm glad I changed my mind. Thanks. Sounded like you had a hard time inside. They were waiting for us. Someone tipped them off. He took out a cell phone and dialed, spoke briefly, and hung up. Ambulances are on the way. Three of my men are down. At least a dozen foreigners. Hussein? Dead. Forsberg took off his headgear and wiped away sweat. This is a real mess. What about his buddy, Gabriel? No sign of him. Selena said, why turn this place into a war zone? They're terrorists. They don't need an excuse. Maybe. Or there's something they didn't want you to find here. Besides the weapons they had? If there is anything, we'll find it. Do you read Arabic? Yes. Come inside with me. There's something I want to show you. I'm going to stay out here. I need the air, Lamont said. Likewise, Nick said. Sirens sounded in the distance. As we close today's captivating episode on Book TV, don't forget to check out Novel Nutrition. Tailored for book lovers, our supplements are designed to complement your reading lifestyle. Use code BOOKTV for a 20% discount on your first order at novelnutrition.co. Enhance your reading experience with Novel Nutrition and don't forget that every purchase helps support an author.